It is very good to be back here with you, back in this sanctuary after being out of town for most of the last month. Some of you probably wondered where in the world I was. It is a homecoming today I've eagerly anticipated to, to hear our fine choir and musicians again, to see your faces, to feel the holy presence in this place together. Where have I been? You might ask. I spent a week in New York at the Chautauqua Institute, where the theme for the week was the next greatest generation. It was a marvelous, rich environment of arts and music of all sorts, performances every day and night, multiple performances mixed throughout with many lectures and classes on an array of subjects, great worship and preaching every morning, challenging presentations, diverse points of view and belief systems. It was a very uh, rich week for my wife and I. This was immediately followed by a week in Montreat, North Carolina with our senior high youth for a fabulous conference themed Hear and Be Heard. The two main speakers, one a shining white-skinned bald Canadian the other a dark black preacher with long dreadlocks from Stone Mountain, Georgia, I thought were both passionate and effective communicators. Our Riverside group stayed in two houses. The boys resided in a house circa 1896, which was quickly nicknamed the Pilgrim House because of its low doorways, antique bathroom, and tiny kitchen. In fact, pretty much everything got a nickname that week. The girls stayed in a new, newer home perched at the summit of a long, extremely steep driveway, which elicited about 200 complaints a day, but was in a small way preparation for our midweek hike up to Lookout Peak. The strenuous hike rewarded us with spectacular views of the Black Mountain area, and became a good educational exercise in teamwork, or not. You all would be proud and blessed if you could have seen how our youth engaged in the Montreat experience. When we were together, they shared their burdens of school and family and peer relationships Fears about the future, struggles to be included. They struggled to be inclusive, to be accepting, to forgive one another. It is so good to see how they are growing up, how they are asking thoughtful questions, thinking critically about the world that we are handing over to them, maturing in their faith and love, still searching for excitement and meaning. Last week, I was again in the Southern Appalachians, this time with our middle school youth, for our outdoor challenge trip. As the moniker implies, all of us were pushed to the limits of our ability and comfort zone. I remember one girl in particular, a, a beautiful little 12-year-old girl who's, who's so uh, amazing to me. She's a, a leader at RPDS, or was, and, and just a great young girl. Uh, we were rappelling and on the afternoon that was just pouring down rain. 
And you might think, well, we don't repel in the rain. Well, yes, we do. And so we were up there shivering, just drenched. And she was shaking like a leaf from the cold and the fear. But by George, she went over that side. She, she did it by herself. The boys, I remember, almost half the group, when we were on the high ropes course, they would get to the end where this giant V-swing is, and they would, they would stare as the power of terror just gripped them as they looked down at their possible demise. And each one of them, one by one, took deep breaths, and then eventually stepped off the platform and into that liminal space where inner growth can occur. I was so proud of all of them. Repeatedly, these children faced their fears, tried to encourage each other, and then laughed and squealed in delight and relief on the other side of whatever the activity was. Memories and learning that will last a lifetime. And as Steve said, thank you so much for your support of these kids and their trips. All throughout these weeks, I must tell you, I felt the presence of this community, the accompaniment of your prayers for our youth, the hand of God upon us. It is this communal life of prayer that has our attention this morning. We continue to paddle through the Gospel of Luke this summer, and the immediate predicate to our sermon text this morning is the statement by Jesus to one of his dear friends. Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things, but there is need of only one thing. And then next in Luke, quote, Jesus was praying in a certain place, end quote. Jesus was doing the one needful thing. So now let us hear the text in its entirety, and let us hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. He was praying in a certain place, and after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us. And do not bring us to the time of testing and trial. And he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, for a friend of mine has arrived, and I have nothing to set before him. And he answers from within the house, Don't bother me. The door has already been locked. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, at least because of his persistence, he will get up and give him whatever he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. 
For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds, and everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you, if your child asks for a fish, and will you would give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if a child asks for an egg, will you give a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? This is the word of the Lord. We wouldn't give a snake to our child, but I'll tell you, a snake came to one of our kids on Outdoor Challenge. Emily Haig's son, Cole, was in a little one-man kayak-type boat called a minnow going down the Hiwassee River. And at the very end of the trip, when we were told to steer to the bank and get out, he had a hard time getting out of the current, and he went into some trees. And as he struggled to get out of the trees, a, a hitchhiker joined him in, in his uh, minnow. Needless to say, Cole was not happy about that. It was about this long, and Cole just pretty much jumped into the upper <laughs> limbs of that tree. A lot of stories. Ask Cole about that. The North American Indian was a 20-volume anthropological and photographic masterwork of the great Edward Curtis. His ambition was to make the definitive record of the authentic Native American peoples and cultures before they disappeared entirely from history. He spent 27 years of his life doing this. He debunked myths about the Custer battle and many aspects of Native American life, such as the notion that they were a religionless, amoral, carnal, spiritually bankrupt, violent people. He invested enormous effort to overcome the suspicions and the protectiveness of the Indians so that they might let him see and understand that which no white man had ever seen before, such as the sacred snake dance of the Hopi and the sun dance of the Apache. When he would come to a new tribe, invariably there would be resistance to his questions and his presence. And Curtis reflected later that when I tried to learn about their religion and inner life, I was always met with silence. I realized I must learn their religion by watching the everyday life of the people. A recent poll of young Americans without a religious affiliation, i.e. the nuns, Ask the question, what word first comes to your mind when you hear the word Christian? The number one answer was anti-gay. The number two answer was judgmental. The number three answer, hypocritical. I shall not go further, it doesn't get better. Inside the church, we sing they will know we are Christians by our love. But outside the church, many young people 
see Christians as worshiping a God of prejudice and parochial interests and punishment. We know this is a misconception here, but they've come to this opinion by observing and watching the everyday life of Christians. Jesus was praying in a certain place, and after he was finished, the disciples came to him and asked him to teach them how to pray. Now you'd think Jesus would have covered this in the first week he was with them. Right after he called them, you'd think that he would say, now look, uh, part of what means follow me, you come, when I leave and go out early in the morning, pray with me, here's how you do it, I'm going to give you a little uh, quiet time booklet so you can learn how to do this, a little scripture verse for each day, and then you just pray a little, you just, you'd, you'd think he would give them a primer, right at the front, but no, apparently, he never did that, and he waited for them to come to him. And finally, after many months, they did. I wonder if he was excited that they finally asked for some instruction or what his feeling was. But the disciples, in their request, they, they compared Jesus to John the Baptist. John taught us how to pray. Your curriculum has been a little bit incomplete, Jesus. Why haven't you? Will you please give us some, some information the way John did? But Jesus gives no magic formula, no prayer of Jabez, no formula to get what we want, only a general pattern of prayer, which, of course, the church promptly turned into a verbatim rule. The disciples watched Jesus' everyday life for months, and then one day said, Jesus teaches to pray. But they were operating out of a certain mindset. Teach us to pray, Jesus. Teach us to pray to our God, the God of, the, of, of Moses and David, the God who, who loves the Jews and, and hates Samaritans and Romans and pretty much anyone who's not a Jew. Help us, teach us how to pray to, to, those who, uh, to, to the God who rewards those who are righteous and punishes the evildoer. Help us pray to the God who wants our nation to prosper and doesn't care too much about the economic parity or the environmental damage of our foreign trade agreements. The God who forgives our moral flaws but can't accept the ugliness of the tattooed one or the brokenness of the addicted one or the flawed one. Jesus, teach us to pray. Pray to the God who we've come to know who doesn't want us to smoke or chew or date girls that do but will let us have our greed and our sequestered schools and our unquestionability to exact swift vengeance on our enemies, i.e. anyone who might interrupt the economic order. Teach us to pray, Jesus. Teach us to get what we want, to escape our fears, to, to excise our dark dreams. Oh, Jesus, teach us to pray. Help us to pray to that God that we know loves us and wants us to be happy and therefore won't judge us too harshly for our extramarital excursions in search of happiness, but will give us forgiveness when the human wreckage stops smoldering. Teach us to pray, Jesus. Help us to understand why our prayers are, are often unanswered or it seems so, 
Teach us why the world doesn't change through what we do. Why we make such a little impact while the church is losing its influence. Teach us, oh God, how to pray about these things. Jesus told two little parables in response. The first is an embarrassing request by a neighbor, a shameless request at midnight. A a person who has a, a sudden visitor, he doesn't have enough food. Hospitality is a big, big deal in the Middle East. It would be not good to Uh, if he failed to present a full meal to this visitor. So he goes next door, even though it is a late hour, knocks on the door, and uh, it's it's sort of a shameless uh, request. The man is not uh, operating from a position of power or status in this interaction. And the neighbor, what does he do? An even more shocking behavior. He rejects the request completely. No way. Do you understand how late it is? Do you understand how hard it is to get my kids back to sleep if I wake them up now? Are you kidding me? I don't even know this person that has come to visit you and you now want me to wake up and disturb everything. This little story uh, made a bigger impact on me after I visited the Holy Land. Um, I went uh, with a group of Presbyterians, and one of the things we did was visit a Palestinian refugee camp, and we were invited into one of their homes. Now, their homes are uh, concrete block, small structures, everything concrete, inside and out, uh, no greenery anywhere, and uh, with the uh, unemployment rate around 60% in the West Bank, it was a sparse but clean, neat little home. And we had a rather large group trying to cram in there, and they insisted on showing us hospitality, on giving us tea and coffee and and water and little cakes. They had nothing, and yet they would not hear of not serving us with generous hospitality. And so the rejection of the neighbor to say, just go away, that just would not happen in the Middle Eastern culture. And Jesus' point is simply, God isn't like that. God is not like this this miserly neighbor. So pray to a generous God. Pray to a God who wants to hear you, who wants to bless you and give you what you need. The second story is a parent-child interaction And Jesus says, you parents, you you want to give your kids what they ask for. You want to make them happy. You want to give them what they need. Uh, I have, I must say, an embarrassing incident in which one of my kids uh, was just insistent on getting a certain pair of basketball shoes. And we were out of town, but he had scoured the Internet and knew exactly when Nike was going to introduce this new basketball shoe. Now they do, it's always a limited production line because they don't, they want to create a high demand for their product. So there was just going to be a few at each store. And so though we were in Orlando, we found a, a mall where on, online we found, he, he did the homework, knew where this store was. It was going to open at seven o'clock in the morning on, on a Saturday just to, to sell these shoes at an outrageous price, I might add. And, Guess what? I was there with them. 
I took them. You know, I'm a sucker, but I took them because I wanted to give them good things. I wanted to bless my child, and so I did that. We all do that with our kids, our grandkids. Isn't that what Black Friday is mostly about? Getting that special toy of the Christmas season to make sure our 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 little one will have what she or he really wants so there's no disappointment. It's this back-to-school season that we now are approaching. Now it's this big economic engine where we have to buy all the clothes and accessories. We have to make sure they have everything, and we want to do it. We don't want them to want for anything. Jesus is trying to say, if we do that, how much more do you think God, who gave his life for us, wants to give us the very best that we need? In fact, give us God's self, the Holy Spirit. You see, in these little stories, Jesus is trying to rehabilitate the disciples' understanding of who God is. What we pray about, how we pray, is shaped by who we think we're praying to. If God is a cosmic cop issuing private morality tickets for our mistakes and hauling people off to jail, well, then our prayers will be prayers kind of fearful, confessing and, and judging others. If God is a distant, impersonal force beyond the edge of the universe, out of touch, perhaps we won't pray about hardly anything at all. If God is a senile old woman or man who smiles benevolently at human mischief, no matter how much grief it brings, our prayers will not change us. Jesus invites us to rehabilitate our image of God beyond our anthropomorphic boundaries, beyond safe conventions. Then, as Richard Foster says, our praying will change us. And Roger Rosenblatt said, we pray to make suffering endurable, evil intelligible, justice desirable, and love possible. Prayer is a big topic. I'm sure I have not answered all of your questions about this text, about this subject. May not have solved your particular problems in prayer. But I have come to the conclusion that I will not pray to a small God, a private God, an exclusively Christian God, a primarily American God, a Presbyterian God. I won't pray to that God. If God does not care about the everyday attitudes and life of all people, if God does not want to change my life from the inside out, if God doesn't want the church to address the underlying issues of race and class and violence in our society, which took Trayvon Martin's life. If God doesn't want peace in Iran and peace with Israel and Palestine, regardless of all the U.S. oil interests and regional control that we want. If God doesn't care about healing our families and giving joy and peace to those who are suffering, then I don't want to pray. I don't want to pray to that God. 
Oh, Jesus, teach us. Teach us to pray. Amen.